the people back on Earth, the crew of Apollo 8 has a message that we would like to send to you. All engines are started. That looks really good. So we'd like it to uh, stir up your cryo tank. Oh wow, it's going up so slowly! The state of the space flyer during the flight is being observed with the help of radio, telemetric, and television devices. Station, this is Houston. Are you ready for the event? Yes, I'm all set, sir. Welcome to our annual bumper Christmas special edition of Space Boffins with Richard Hollingham and Sue Nelson in partnership with The Naked Scientists. And for our final podcast of 2018, we're at the Royal Astronomical Society in their rather wonderful book-lined council room in London with astronomer Dr Robert Massey and art historian Dr Alexandra Losk from Brighton Museum. And they're the authors of the rather beautiful book, Moon, Art, Science, culture. And there's definitely a lunar theme in this month's podcast as we mark the 50th anniversary of the first manned mission to orbit the moon, Apollo 8. The Apollo program was basically a battle in the Cold War. It wasn't a voyage of exploration or scientific discovery. It was a political battle in the Cold War. That's Frank Borman, mission commander of Apollo 8. More from Frank in a moment, or as I called him when I interviewed him recently, Colonel Borman. Did he insist on that? No, but he's quite a... He's 90 years old. He's quite an intimidating man. (laughs) Did you call Um, him sir? I pretty much called him sir, but you don't want to mess with him. But he was the commander of Apollo 8. He was extraordinarily nice. How did he compare to to Buzz Aldrin? Was he sort of intimidating like Buzz? No, very nice. Very nice and quite funny, actually. Very dry way. implying Buzz isn't nice or funny. No, no, no. I'm not saying any of that. (laughs) I'm just saying Colonel Borman was... Pretty fantastic, as you will hear. Excellent. Looking forward to it. This book, I really like this book because it's not just about the history of Apollo. I mean, I love the history of Apollo, but it's been told again and again and again and again. Uh, It's this significance of the moon, this wider significance of the moon. So let's go personal to start with. What does the moon mean to you, Alexandra? Well, the moon has been featuring very largely in my life because I was born the year... (laughs) humans first set foot on the moon and uh, so I've always been thinking about that and what it meant to people the year I was born and obviously now we're coming up to the 50th anniversary I'm an art historian I'm particularly interested in the late 18th and early 19th century the romantic age and the moon is everywhere in the romantic period in poetry in paintings in sort of gothic writing and of course a lot was happening in science as well in the 18th and early 19th century and I thought we should a mark the 50th anniversary with something that combines both the sciences and the arts and to really help do away with that notion that they are completely separate because they influence each other and the moon has been so important to us humans not just 50 years ago you know we're going back thousands and thousands of years and uh, I thought you know why not pitch this as an idea as a publication. I love that there's a chapter on For example, werewolves. How is there a connection to the moon? Well, if we want to look beyond what the moon means in science, we're looking at what the moon has done to us humans and how we thought about it before we could really understand uh, what it was all about. And the moon is interesting because it is so full of contrasts. So it gives light. 
we associate it with life, the cycle of life, of course, the seasons and, and so on. But it's also a symbol of darkness. It, it comes out of the dark. And as much as you can have a love tryst in moonlight, you also have crime happening in moonlight because it gives, <laughs> it gives uh, crime, you know, stage lighting. So no... Uh, surprise then that a lot of things that are scary developed out of the you know alongside other mythologies about them including werewolves so robert are you just here for the serious stuff then <laughs> <laughs> not at all <laughs> look i mean i think i think the moon the moon's influence if per, is pervasive just because it's there in the sky right you know it's impossible to miss and i think i was i was referred to when i talk about it is that it's the one object in the sky apart from the sun that you can see is not a point of light so you know yes obviously you know we look at planets down we realize they're actually vast worlds of their own right retinues of their own moons and so on but the moon you can not only see it as a disc in the sky you can see detail on it you can see it's changing shape it isn't any surprise that since antiquity people have tried to understand what it is how far away it is and so on it's not surprising at all that it's had this huge influence on human society did you feel though a, a pressure to curate effectively the the science there's so much science and astronomy that's been done on the moon to go with what are in, in in this book some amazing pictures you know beautiful pictures not just of like the moon in eclipse but you know there are art pictures that show the moon there are there are statues shown it's 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 one of those coffee table books here we go islam and the moon mm. how do you choose what to include when you could write <laughs> out an entire well, book exactly. on on its I, own you could write an entire book on most of those topics, mm-hmm. and the answer is it's really difficult. You, we were uh, looking for iconic images and quirky ones as well, and we tried to provide a blend of those, I think it's fair to say. And it was good for me too, because I didn't know much about the art historical side of the moon, so I learned a lot from working with Alexandra on that, I have to say. It's, you know, it's, it's good to challenge yourself on these things as well. Uh, and we tried to find things, I think, that just were genuinely interesting and unusual. Um, so, for example, some of the images of lunar fashion and so on. You know, I suspect, had we been around in the 1960s, and like Alexandra, I was just about born in the 60s, just about. And in fact, I thought it was a month premature, so had I been on time, I might not even have been born in the 60s. Um, But, you know, to see those influences that to some extent are forgotten. I mean, I had, for example, realised that even in the 1960s, there was a space Barbie, right, which is is really incongruous because you think, you know, actually it had a terrible reputation as a toy for for good reason. Um, But even back in the 1960s, you know, it clearly wasn't beyond the scope of imagination that, you know, maybe women would make it into space. And the fashion, Alexandra, go, go through what the fashion was because it's, it's, it, the women, the picture you've got is, it's funny because it, it dates itself, it's retro, um, it's quirky, but what's the connection? How, do, how did they represent the moon in terms of fashion? Most prominently through the colour and the sleek shapes. So you have hats or hat, you know, headgear that resembles sort of a, a, a Apollo mission moonwear astronauts' outfits. But I think it goes well. It's it's the beginning of 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 the modern age. So it it, it coincides with miniskirts and with a completely different look. Out with the frills and in with the sleekness. And uh, it's just thinking of other worlds and going a little bit further. We'd all should be wearing goldfish bowls on our heads, shouldn't we? That's what they that's what they did. That's what they did. But really, part of the the reason for doing this book was to show that it all started a lot earlier. So if you look at early science fiction, 
even from the late 19th century and the illustrations of those early stories about going to the moon, about getting there, and you see how people are dressed. And, you know, 100 years later, you see that coming into real fashion. And there's a fantastic example, which really also predates the, the Barbie, the Barbie doll from the 1960s, and that's Fritz Lang's film, science fiction film from 1929, about a woman, the woman on the who moon, goes... Yeah. To the moon. So and she's poster, one of the space crew. That poster in it is incredible as well. I love it. That uh, Yeah, so not, on, not only the fashion sort of is a precursor to what happens later, even so the, the basic rocket design yeah. really sort of gives us an idea of what happens in this case, you know, 30, 40 years later. It was nice to see Alexandra Mears' work that's in here because she's been on the podcast we were at uh, the Tate in in Liverpool Tate Modern in Liverpool where she had one of her exhibitions she had one in Oxford as well although this was a a different one to what we saw at that exhibition could you describe it for people because it's quite unusual (laughs) I didn't see that one but I'm so glad we've got Alexandra Mir in the book because she did this whole uh, series of photographs and they're very funny and she puts herself or she puts women on the moon she's sort of restages the moon landing. That's right. But she did it in women. Holland, didn't she? It's now all over the world yeah. where you she te- gets basically a bit of beach and she builds a moonscape and gets mm. people to announce that they're the first, you know, Chinese, Chinese person on the moon, the first black man on the first pregnant woman on the moon. Whatever. Yes. And, and it's also, of course, of a nod to all these conspiracy theorists who say, oh, it didn't happen or all the moon landings were sort of faked. So I think I think that work is really funny. And there's other and you contemporary You better describe artwork. it. It's, it's a face... With two moons for eyes. Yes. And it's actually, it's the Madonna. It's the Virgin Mary. Oh, I didn't even know. And that also <laughs> taps into much, much older imagery of the Virgin Mary standing on a sickle moon. And uh, that's, of course, not to uh, the moon relating to fertility. So we have religious symbolism sort of, you know, woven into contemporary art. Okay, we'll talk more in a few minutes' time. But 50 years ago, on the 21st of December, 1968, NASA launched Apollo 8. Uh, To my mind, it's a mission as significant, if not more significant, than the moon landing itself. It was the first test of the giant Saturn V rocket. The previous unmanned test of the launcher would most likely have killed the crew on board. It also produced that incredible Earthrise image where you see the blue marble of the Earth rising over the lunar surface. And the crew read from Genesis as they orbited above the moon. Well, for a first-hand account... Here's Apollo 8 Commander Colonel Frank Borman. This is Apollo Saturn Launch Control at T-minus 2 hours, 34 minutes, 57 seconds and counting. All three Apollo 8 astronauts aboard this spacecraft, Frank Borman, Jim Lovell and Bill Anders, all other aspects of the mission are go. Well, our mission had been changed from a Earth orbital mission to a lunar orbital mission and moved uh, ahead by four months. And we only had four months to train for this new mission. And the basic reason for that was that the CIA had informed NASA that they thought the Russians were going to have a circumlunar flight before the end of the year. Everyone forgets that uh, the Apollo program was basically a battle in the Cold War. It wasn't a voyage of exploration or scientific discovery. It was a political battle in the Cold War. And so we were Cold War warriors. In my opinion, the mission was extremely important not only to the U.S., but to free people everywhere. We have ignition sequence start. The engines are on. Four, three, two, one, zero. We have.
We were the first crew on a Saturn V, but the Saturn V had a two unmanned tests before that. It was really a remarkable machine. It was, uh, it was still is the most powerful machine ever made by man. Seven and a half million pounds of thrust at liftoff. It was burning fuel at a prodigious weight. I, I think it was something like uh, 5,000 gallons a second, I, if I remember. I felt like we were on the uh, point of a needle, a very large needle, and uh, I had a feeling of uh, being uh, along for the ride rather than being in control of anything. Apollo 8, Houston, you are go. Over. Apollo 8 is go. Thank you, Houston. I think we fired the spacecraft engine something like four minutes to slow down enough to get in lunar orbit. Three quarters of the way through that, we looked down and there was the moon. We were, of course, on the far side of the moon. People on Earth often refer to that as the dark side, but that's incorrect. On our mission, the back side or the far side was illuminated uh, more brilliantly from the sun than the side closest to the Earth. And the uh, lunar surface was terribly distressed with uh, meteorites, holes, craters, volcanic uh, residue. Uh, it was uh, a very, very distressed place. And one of the things that, that struck me was there was absolutely no color. It was either gray or black or white. Oh, my God, look at that picture over there. There's the earth coming up. Wow, is that pretty? Hey, don't take that. It's not scheduled. <laughs> on about the I don't know the fifth or sixth revolution we looked up and there was the earth in the background hand me a roll of color quick oh man that's crazy where is it quick and Bill Anders took the picture that uh, became a stamp and I think it's probably one of the more significant pictures that hum humans had ever taken the contrast between the distressed moon and the beautiful blue earth was remarkable the Earth was the only thing in the entire universe that had any color. It was a, uh, a remarkable sight and a, a beautiful sight. We're very, very fortunate to live on this planet. Hey, I've got it right here. Let's, let me get up this a lot clearer. Bill, I got a phrase that's very clear right here. Got it? Yep. Take several of them. Take several of them. Here, give it to me. Wait a minute, let me just get the right setting here. Just calm, down. Okay, calm down, Bubba. Oh, I got a ray. Oh, that's a beautiful shot. 250 at F11. That Earthrise photograph that Bill Anders took gave us all the sense that we live on a fragile planet, that we have limited resources, and we better learn to take care of it. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. We were quite convinced that it was the, the most appropriate thing to do because there's a sense of awe, in my part at least, that uh, this universe is bigger than all of us. It's too orderly and it's it's uh, too enormous not to have some sort of divine creation. And God called the dry land Earth. And the gathering together of the waters called these seas. God saw that it was good. 
And from the crew of Apollo 8, we close with good night, good luck, a Merry Christmas, and God bless all of you, all of you on the good earth. Apollo 8 Commander Frank Borman, uh, now 90, and you can hear more of that interview and lots more beside, including music and some unbroadcast archive in a special BBC Radio 3 programme, I know, Radio 3, called Message from the Moon, which goes out on the 22nd of December on BBC Radio 3 in the Between the Ears slot. And I mean, I should say, because I'm really proud of this, um, it also features astronauts talking about religion and belief, and that's the essential gist of the programme. Uh, as well as Frank Borman, we've got interviews new interviews with Charlie Duke, Nicole Stott, Paolo Nespoli, Mike Massimino and serving NASA astronaut Jeff Williams all talking about religion and belief. Nice. It's going to be good. It is really good. Uh, so BBC Radio 3, 22nd of December. And then on uh, they always plug the BBC Sounds app, don't they, at this point? So on the BBC Sounds app as well. And what I was amazed by this, um, Robert, you've come across a lot of astronauts uh, during, you know, doing what you do here at the Royal Astronomical Society. Um, I, I was surprised that actually I found more astronauts who are religious than not religious. And it's just that no one had ever asked them. You know, because, you know, I've done interviews before with Charlie Duke for, you know, famously religious, and, and you end up taking out all the religious stuff. So it's quite interesting that actually they're, they're talking about religion. And there's even, I mean, you look at the picture of the space station, it's even a little shrine up there. I think it's a really good point. We don't tend to ask it that much. Actually, we did do a poll of our members and found that although the majority were, were atheists, agnostic and so on, about 40% had some religious faith, you know, whether that was Christian, Christianity followed by Islam and so on. So it's not, it's not unheard of at all, even in the hardcore scientific community. Yeah, I, I, don't know whether that's, I don't know whether the kind of sample of astronauts reflects the fact that a lot of them are in the US, which is an, a more religious country or not as well. It may also be something about that otherworldly experience where, frankly, if you go up into space, if you do something as extraordinary ordinarily brave and slightly crazy as going to the moon you know on spacecraft which are let's face it were you know there's absolutely no guarantee of a safe return and then you come back perhaps that really does uh, reinforce that idea in your mind um, but uh, yeah I think I think it's uh, it's certainly not incompatible and you do find a lot of people who will have those discussions I mean a good friend of mine is an imam and uh, you know uh, very much into astronomy and science and actually comes into a bit of trouble now and again for talking about things like you know the age of the universe and evolution and so on so I think although Though there are conflicts in it, there are also a lot of synergies as well. Alexandra, the moon itself has been a god through history, or a deity at least. Yes, there's any number of personifications, uh, you know, deities that are associated with the moon. So it's always maybe we just have to accept that that has always been the case. But I'm also I was I'm quite baffled by this recording um, but you know I have looked into how artists have dealt with this and if we look back to the romantics and think of those people who painted the moon uh, and the best knowns are perhaps John Constable, Samuel Palmer and in Germany um, Caspar David Friedrich. All three paint the moon as not as a deity but as a protagonist and all three deeply religious but all three also very very keen on science um, and observation and actually voicing that saying, you know, in order to paint, if you want, the sublime, 
something otherworldly, something that's bigger than us, something divine, you also have to treat painting like a science and bring in observation and bring in tools as well. Look through a telescope. And later on, of course, photography comes in. A question I've got to ask you, in case I forget. The Great Moon Hoax. Now, we have conspiracy theories now. The Great Moon Hoax is, is something else. Now, who's going to talk about this? Well, can I, we, we can I just say that the Great Moon Hoax... I mean, the division in this book was quite clear. I dealt with you know, visual culture and poetry and so on, and, and Robert, of course, with the scientific side. But in some cases, we sort of fought a bit over who gets which topic, and I was really keen to do the Moon Hoax, but... I. Gave it she, to she you. did generously cede this one to me. <laughs> so what I is it? it. Tell, what, what is this? Well, I wanted to do the moon hoax because it involves a giraffe on the moon. <laughs> Over to you, it, It's fabulous. It's an 1835 story published in the New York Sun, which I don't think it, it exists anymore, but it purported to be a description of observations of John Herschel working in the Cape of Good Hope in what's now South Africa, uh, describing life on the moon. Now, there's lots of ironies in this, one of which is that his dad, William Herschel, our founding president actually did believe there was life on the moon and if you read his transcript downstairs in our library you can see his descriptions of fields and all these things i have no idea how he managed to even imagine he was seeing these things but uh, yeah john herschel's accounts were, were re- repeated over a series of weeks in the new york sun and they're all completely made up and of course in those days you know you had obviously no fake news fake news they were absolutely <laughs> fake news i mean yeah of, of a more entertaining and less damaging type i guess so yeah and and it took weeks for him to find out about it and he took it in good humour to begin with until he started getting letters from people who took his observations seriously and I think then at that point for the rest of his life he was a bit unhappy about it all you know. So what, did he do it, he did it deliberately then as a joke? He, he did, no, John Herschel had nothing to do with it, it was, it was fake news, it was a report of his work that had been invented, they invented a ridiculous type of telescope that was absolutely much bigger than anything that could have been made and, and uh, fabricated the lot and they got more and more outlandish in their descriptions with bat people and all these things that you couldn't, well, there's, there's an image, you, you couldn't possibly see this stuff. On and describe that, that's a unicorn in the bottom. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah, I mean, you know, if there's a fake news icon, I think the unicorn has got to be one. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Okay, so we'll put some details of the Radio 3 programme on Facebook and Twitter and uh, what other, other social media pages we subscribe to. And uh, we'll aim to include a bit more of uh, Charlie Duke. So I did the interview with uh, Charlie Duke on this, and I think we'll put a bit of, more of that in a, in a future podcast. There's a fair amount in the programme, but we'll put some more in the podcast. Uh, more from our guests too, Robert Massey and Alexandra Lost to come, and we'll be talking about the return to the moon with ESA's Thomas Reiter. This is Space Boffins. We're in partnership with The Naked Scientists. You might not associate grassy banks with the coast. It is a bit like stepping abroad for a second. Well, I'm here on the Ningaloo Reef, take people swimming with whale sharks. Just another day at the office. Yeah, just another day at the office, mate. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. The Naked Scientist podcast takes you to the science topics you need to hear about. Physics, medicine, nature. Keep up to date with what's going on in the field. First this week, the announcement from LIGO. And find out the answers to every question you never thought to ask. What kills more people, sharks or selfies? To subscribe, search Naked Scientist podcast or head over to our website. Well, we've just heard from one of the men who was instrumental in getting the first men on the moon. And um, as you may know, I've just written a book about someone who could have been the first woman on the moon, if only history had been a little kinder. 
Great stocking filler. It's called <laughs> Wally Funk's Race to Space. It was published recently in the UK. Uh, I mean, the reviews have been fantastic. I'm so uh, pleased, you know, yeah. Blow your own trumpet here. It's Book of the <laughs> Month in Sky at Night. Was that a trumpet blowing? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was or something else. Yes. Um, uh, Book of the Month, Sky at Night. Uh, Book of the Week in uh, the Daily Mail. There was a review in Physics World and uh, out in the US in, in March. Yeah, I'm, I'm really pleased about how it's um, been received. And even better that two of the surviving Mercury 13 members, Janora Jessen and Sarah Ratley, got in touch with me by email. Wally had given me them my email. And obviously, my heart, I was so excited, but also dreading, thinking they're going to say, what the hell have you done? Um, but both of them not only enjoyed it, they thought it was accurate, thank God. <laughs> but they, they thought it really got Wally to a T. So I was abs- I actually cried when I read the one from Janora Jessen because I was just sort of overcome with emotion about it. So if if you if you listen to this podcast and you'll you'll probably know about the the Mercury 13 that the 13 women pilots who did the same astronaut tests as the Mercury 7 between they did theirs between 1960 60 61 but because of the nature of the era um, NASA didn't take women astronauts and they never got to go um, into space but Wally never gave up and um, we're hoping that to 2019 50th anniversary of the moon landings that Virgin Galactic will also take their first passengers into space and I'm hoping that by the end of the year the woman who could well have been the first woman on the moon will get to go into space so maybe in 12 months time we'll be talking about her finally finally that that would be so good and anyway as a treat i thought i would play a couple of really short snippets of wally and these were part we we sort of you know we did several road trips we were at easter we were at nasa we made radio programs together we did a trip to spaceport america but these are actually from when we were sharing a hotel in cocoa beach by cape canaveral and I'm making dinner, actually. And that's what you hear sort of going on in the background. And this first extract, and it's because I was recording it, is basically how she, when she was younger, she quite literally, how she tried to fly. At, at four, Daddy was bringing me balsa wood in a box, airplanes, to put together. Mm-hmm. And that's when I got... I got an idea of, I had a Superman cape was given to me for my birthday. I got out on the barn, put some hay down below, and I jumped off the barn trying to fly. And that didn't work, so I did it again. Uh, Oh, my nose doesn't have a propeller. (laughs) And then it wasn't until I learned you have to have lift. Oh, I never had any lift off my wings. So then I was given a razor blade and everything that you would need to make cut out your balsa wood ribs and part of the wing and the fuselage and glue everything together. And then, oh, I have to put some of this tissue paper over the fuselage so that I can eventually paint it. But it wasn't taunt enough. So I thought, I need something to spray. And I watched Mother, she could spray with her perfume. So I dumped out all of her perfume, (laughs) put water in it, and I sprayed the wings and everything, and it came out perfect. And that was the only time I really, you shouldn't have done that. This is expensive perfume. You ask before you get into my stuff. Yes, ma'am. 
Well, as you can tell, she was a tomboy, a bit of a tomboy. And so when her parents then later sent her to a really quite posh and proper private all-girls school, it was called Stevens College, it wasn't an immediate fit with Wally, but it did lead to the start of her aviation career. And here she is talking about that. I love this bit. I love it. I've always been out there. Uh, what's the word I want to use? Gregarious? Uh, yeah. But you see, these older girls kind of overtook me yeah. by their makeup, their dress, their fingernails. Some of them had little drinks. They were all frou-frou. I don't like frou-frou. So I got through all that. I got into my courses. I can't remember now what I took. It's probably labeled somewhere. And I started getting along with people. I met other people that weren't as frou-frou as I am. And it started coming out around okay. I called Mo and said, I think it's going to be okay. I'm meeting more people that are interested in, in things that I did as a kid, yeah. as a tomboy. So about six months later, my advisor, Dr. Bates, called Mother up and said, Mrs. Funk, we need to chat. Your daughter is not doing as well as she could in her classwork. And Mother said, Dr. Bates, do you have an airport? I said, yes. Then you get her out there tomorrow. And he did. And that's when I started flying. <laughs> did, your gra- stole... did your grades improve? I don't remember. <laughs> because I was either at the gym or at the airport. And then I could wear pants. Because every night you had to have heels, hose, and dress. And in school, frou-frou stuff and, and skirt. If I was going flying, I could wear pants. Not Levi's, but pants. Mother always had me decked out. I got used to it after a while. She wanted to give me a coming out party in New York, and I said, no, I'd rather be out shooting my gun. <laughs> She's brilliant, isn't she? That is, that is great. You should broadcast the whole lot. How much have you got of that? Oh, I've got loads, loads of that material. I love the way everyone was laughing every time she said, frou-frou, frou-frou. <laughs> The only other person I've ever heard use that word, frou-frou, was the British astronaut Helen Sharman. Oh, really? <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I just thought, that's so odd. I've, I've, uh, you know, and it was within weeks as well I heard both Wally and uh, Helen Sharman use the word frou-frou to describe dresses and, and what have you. Anyway, I'm giving away a couple of audiobook versions of Wally Funk's Race to Space. Um, on So if you check out our Space Boffins Twitter uh, and Facebook, um, you should hopefully see what you need to do, just a retweet and a, and a share, and with a bit of luck, you'll get a copy. But if not, buy one. So much better. <laughs> now, for the first time in decades, the space agencies are working on a return to the moon. ESA is supplying NASA's Orion spacecraft with its crucial service module that will provide power, water and air for its first demonstration flight, a lunar flyby without astronauts in 2020. And a few weeks ago, the European service module arrived safely at the launch site at Cape Canaveral. Well, former European astronaut Thomas Reiter is now the interagency coordinator for ESA's Director General. And I caught up with him recently, shortly after he'd met up with the head of NASA. And I asked Thomas how cooperating on Orion was working out. You can imagine that our biggest concern has been continuity in this relationship, which uh, has been built up over so many years, I can even say decades. 
and um, with let's say slight uh, corrections in the direction that NASA has been moving um, after Which is uh, sort the, of from the, Mars and now back to the exactly. moon exactly yeah. um, that was a little bit the concern uh, how will there be a certain continuity established now I think what we can say today that we are very uh, happy and uh, almost relaxed I would say that uh, this continuity is the case bringing together such a very complex system that will leave low Earth orbit and go to the moon is a big challenge. And how different will the Orion vehicle be to the ATV, which went to and from to the, the space station? Actually, it's a little bit... There are quite some differences because ATV was a fully autonomous vehicle. It completely automatically did the rendezvous and docking, of course, under control from uh, ground station in Toulouse. And, of course, this rendezvous and docking will not be needed on these first missions. That will come later when the lunar orbital platform will be established and then uh, the Orion capsule will dock to that. So for the moment, it's mainly a propulsion energy supply, uh, resources like uh, air, oxygen, water, heat dissipation. So those are the main functions. And of course, we could take over some components from ATV. The majority had to be adapted because there were constraints in terms of mass uh, and the size of the module. So that was really a, a very good challenge for the main contractor and all the subcontractors to do these adaptations. But we could not have done it if we would not have had this experience with uh, ATV. And actually there was a, a phase A study related to a cargo version, uh, a return version of ATV, which was called ARV. And in this phase we have learned a lot technically by operating ATV, by trying to advance it to a new system from which we profited in the adaptation of all this knowledge and uh, technology to the uh, service module. Well, it's a, a wonderful venture and, it's, uh, and good luck with it. Thank you very much indeed, Thomas Wright. Thank you. Robert, is this all good news? <laughs> uh, I mean, I keep reading pieces talking about the SLS, the Space Launch System rocket that NASA's building, the technology being kind of overtaken by things that SpaceX are doing and everything off track as usual. But I mean, you know, you get these stories at NASA. I mean, is this, is this good? Is it all happening? Is it all happening? I mean, look, come on, that's such an open question. We've been here a few times before. I suppose there is a difference in the sense that you're seeing things being built. You are seeing test flights, at least. We, we might, when the Constellation program started, for example, before it faded away, have expected some of the progress to be a bit faster. But, yeah, I mean, in principle, there's no reason we couldn't go back to the moon much more quickly. Uh, the, the announcement around the, the Lunar Gateway is certainly interesting as well, because I think that was probably seen as one of the... When the Apollo program happened, that was seen as one of the things that brought it to an end, the fact that everything was based on Earth orbit transfer, whereas perhaps, you know, I think, I'm not sure this has been viable in the early 70s, but if you'd had an orbiting system around the moon, maybe would have had more of a permanent presence then. So it's it's certainly interesting news. Um, I'd like to see this succeeding. I think it's far more likely that, you know, we'll be sending people back to the moon in the next 10 or 20 years than we are to Mars, you know, and I, I keep oh, saying without that. Certainly, you know, yeah. Without certainly, yeah. But it's just that Mars has been a presidential ambition in the US, you know, and, and we hear it again and again. But now, perhaps that moon is just that much easier, and that's why it's so much more likely. Oh, I, I think they've, they keep saying Mars is the next stepping stage. But yes, I mean, two years ago, that was all you 
that was all you heard, which is why I mentioned it to Thomas Reicher. And, and I think you have to be sanguine about it, don't you, is that basically NASA has had a, a flip-flop, or a flip. Uh, a flip-flop will be just going on the beach, wouldn't it? We'll just say flip <laughs> instead. They've had well, a so flip. It's an old phrase. It is, isn't it? It's an American it's phrase, isn't it, flip-flop? Oh. I, you know, I, I wasn't around in the early 70s. I certainly wasn't Stop in a position. Stop boasting. To, yeah, well, I wasn't around in the early 70s, but I wasn't old enough to go into bedding shops. But you could have. It, it, it is said you could have gone into, you know, Ladbrokes or somewhere in 1973, placed a bet on people being at Mars by 1980 or tried to, and they wouldn't have taken your money. The assumption was just that it would be rapid progress. This would all happen. And, of course, you know, realistically, that was never going to be yeah. the case because it's bad enough when you send astronauts to the moon and they're three or four days away without realistic hope of rescue. You send them on that two-year mission to Mars. You know, it's, it's, it's such a giant step beyond that. What's interesting that I think Colonel Borman talked about uh, was this idea... Is that Colonel Borman? Colonel, Colonel Borman, <laughs> yeah. Um, Due deference. Yeah, <laughs> there, absolutely. <laughs> and I did the interview. I was in London. He was in Billings, Montana, but I was, wasn't going to mess with him. Um, <laughs> is, he, was, he described himself as a Cold War warrior. And there was that absolute pressure to get it done. There isn't that pressure now. No, I think that's right. The, the superpower rivalry was about accomplishing first, about developing missile technology, about U.S. fears of Soviet advances, even though the Soviets censored their mission failures, you know, naturally only reported the ones that worked. But it absolutely plays out in that. I mean, I, there's a good uh, book, which I recommend, as well as our own, called uh, <laughs> Dark Side of the Moon by Gerard de Groot. And he talks about the insane levels of money that went into the, the program, the fact that even after Kennedy had made his pledge, he wanted to find ways of ramping it down, that presidents after that were was certainly not going to spend at that level because I mean you know as a scientist as, as someone with enthusiasm for space and astronomy I could not justify four percent of UK, UK GDP going into a space program you know which is what the Americans were spending on Apollo now they were rich in the 60s but still you know can you imagine any country doing that today I, I seriously can't so I think we're in a different time on the other hand you know uh, necessity being the mother of you know invention and so on you you do you have seen much more efficient use of space robot probes are much cheaper than they used to be and sending people into space is a bit more affordable as well. So, you know, you, you, inevitably with the new technology, you go down that road. So I think that's why we'll, why we'll see people going back. It's become that much easier. Also, it's a reminder, hearing Colonel Borman um, talk about how it was political, effectively. It, you know, he said it wasn't about science and exploration. And it was interesting to actually hear an Apollo astronaut actually say that quite openly. And in a way, not much is different now because for the people at NASA, it's a government agency. They have to do whatever the direction is of the president at that time. And if the emphasis changes, then so much, so should they. So they they have to get behind the moon now, whether they wanted to or not. Although, to be fair, and we've always said this for a long time on the podcast, whenever we've gone to NASA, privately, they all say... Actually, Mars is, is much harder than... It, it, uh, there's no way we can do it within this current timescale that actually the, the, the moon would be better. So, in fact, although it's a flip, it's actually a flip that I suspect is welcomed within the American Space Agency because it's more achievable. It is an important stepping stone towards Mars. That was too big a leap. And this now is more obtainable and exciting. But I agree with you is that my thing is Orion looks so like Apollo. I wish there was something new and different in terms of design and technology to, to do it. 
Yeah, I mean, we're still using rockets. You know, the, the fundamental design for the rockets that take people into orbit are much the same as they were in the 1960s. I think it was Jan Werner, the ESA director general, who made that point in a speech, and absolutely right. Now, SpaceX, sure, they have these reusable components and so on. They're still chemical rockets. Mm-hmm. You know, we haven't found anything different as a means of getting us to orbit, and unless you build something like a space elevator, I'm not, I'm not sure what would make a big difference. Uh, the With or without a unicorn. With or without a unicorn <laughs> on the top, yeah. I mean, I mean the... the There is a subtle difference between the European and U.S. approach to this, which is that the U.S. approach to science and exploration is that they're all mandated by Congress, so they can vote down specific projects. It's much harder to do that in in Europe because the commitment from the European Space Agency is much more governed by sort of intergovernmental negotiation, but scientists have a lot of input in that as well. So when they choose a probe or something, it's supposed to be based on scientific merit. You know, I doubt I don't doubt there are underpinning political considerations, but it isn't as though some single figure can say, no, you're changing direction completely. And I think that's good. I actually think that's a, that's a healthy thing about the program we have. As the vehicle starts to pull itself away from and her, we have the Tim's away! Big cheer. In 2015, Hayden Geraghty sat in front of the television to watch British astronaut Tim Peake launch to the International Space Station. Hayden was five years old. He has autism and ADHD, and because he was non-verbal, he communicated mainly with printed cards. And then he started joining in with the countdown. I'm Hayden, I'm eight years old. Well, since that moment, as you can hear, Hayden not only talks, he became obsessed with space. Many people support his progress on social media, including Tim Peake, and his story caught the attention of the Lottie Company. Now, they make dolls based on real children, and there's one now that's made in Hayden's image. His mum, Caroline Geraghty, who works for Astronomy Ireland magazine, showed me the end result. Now, first of all, I've got to describe this amazing doll which is of your son Hayden and it's boxed he's in a t-shirt that says Tesla and Einstein and me they've got um, some headphones which Hayden wears doesn't he because it, it sort of reduces the sensory overload is that right yeah he would wear those you know in noisy situations and it's more you know a comfort thing for him and we've got a, a flight suit which uh, I think every time I see Hayden he's yeah, wearing that the uh, signature flight suit yeah. <laughs> even a picture of Hayden and a, a dog at the bottom an assistance dog uh, which now they train for autism oh, I didn't know that they had it has dogs. the blue bandana on it and that's to signify that it has been trained to help a child with autism with the blue a pair of sneakers in the right and a pair of glasses. The sunglasses as well, you know, with autism, bright lights and stuff as well. So how did this actually come about? Actually, we were in touch, put in touch with Dr Neve Shaw. She was actually going to do a zero-gravity flight in Star City. And she took an, a piece of artwork of Hayden's with her to fly with her, which was amazing. Then she would do outreach work for the company Lottie Dolls with her work and what she would do. And she said to Lottie, you have to meet these people and hear their story. Hayden had the idea. He only discovered recently that Tim Peake actually took one of the Lottie dolls to space with him. The star gazing Lottie doll. Oh, that's the one that, it's a woman, isn't it? Yeah. With a a telescope. The telescope, yeah. That was inspired by a little girl called Abigail from Canada. And it went to space with Tim, which was incredible. When he found out that... He said, I would love a doll like me. So when we had the meeting then with Lottie in February, we put together the idea that Hayden would like the doll with the flight suit and the ear defenders. 
and we're here now with this doll. It is just amazing, it's isn't amazing. it? And so the aim of it then is to bring people's attention to the needs of, of children with, yeah. with autism. Yeah, because at the time of Hayden, whenever he was non-verbal, toy-wise, there was nothing really that on the market that he could relate to. Now we thought with this doll, not just for children, not on the spectrum, you know, children to see other children with differences. Autism, it's not visual, until you read the, the leaflet in the box here about Hayden, especially now there's a lot of children out there in the space and science and engineering. So we're hoping now that this would open sort of like a gateway for more work in, in the STEM industry for, for kids on the spectrum. Caroline Geraghty, who has generously donated a Hayden Lottie doll for Space Boffins listeners. So if you know any child who's really into space, um, especially with autism, perhaps, uh, who would love one of the uh, dolls for Christmas, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, let us know, and we'll choose a lucky winner, hopefully, before Christmas, and get it sent to you by then. And Alexandra, you've actually brought along. This was you not didn't even planned. Know. We didn't know. We we we've said we're going to talk about sort of Christmas gifts, space Christmas gifts. Obviously, your book would be the, well, the perfect Christmas gift. And Wally Funk's Race, Race for Space. For space yeah. And to listen to the Radio 3 programme. Yeah. <laughs> but you brought along a Lottie doll. The one that was mentioned as well. Absolutely, because uh, this is a doll that my daughter has and absolutely loves it. She could never really cope with Barbie dolls, unless it was, of course, the, the original 1960s. <laughs> space Barbie, I'd like that. But no, the Lottie doll is, is great. It, it takes children seriously. It's a, it's a, it's a young girl in uh, dungarees, stripy socks, sensible shoes, sensible jacket, a notebook and a telescope. So, you know, give that to young children. It's a great toy. Yeah, Stargazer. And this was the Star- one that Neve Shaw, it's, Shaw it's um, was talking about and that we were one. talking about on there. And this is the, the same type of doll that went up into space mm. with Tim Peake. So, Robert, uh, space Christmas gifts. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, my daughter has this too. We oh, we, we yeah. help them create this, and it's it's all help them promote it. At least it's been yeah. great. And there's also a sort of rock hound one and various other things. They're they're really good. So strongly recommend the the Arclu series of dolls. Mm-hmm. Um, space gifts. Well, depending on your age, really, um, there's a whole range of things. I was thinking children's ones too. Um, there's uh, one by a friend of mine, Stuart Atkinson, The Cat's Guide to the Night Sky, which is a, a guide for constellations for 7 to 11-year-old. I can strongly recommend that. Um, if you're looking for something more mature and a bit more cynical than the uh, dark side of the moon covering the kind of underpinning politics of the space program in the 60s by Gerard de Groot, uh, I, I definitely yeah. recommend that. It's not that new, actually, but it's been reprinted, and it, it, it really is uh, an antidote to some of the over overplaying of this and probably in line with what your interview was saying. And then uh, I also thought, you know, People want telescopes, so there's the Celestron First Scope, I think is not a bad gift for someone who's who's quite young, doesn't want to spend too, or, or parents don't want to spend too much <laughs> money, more likely, um, but it would be enough to show, you know, the, the uh, uh, craters on the moon, um, clusters and, and faint, uh, brighter nebulae and that kind of thing. I'm going to bring in um, movies at this point. I'm not sure First Man will be out on DVD or Blu-ray yet, but even if it is, go and see it at the cinema, because it's going to be way better at the cinema. I've actually talked to a few people who knew Neil Armstrong. I've never been, I was never lucky enough to, to interview or meet Neil Armstrong. But I was in Houston recently. I spoke to everyone I could. What was Neil Armstrong actually like? So the only criticism of the film, they thought the film was fantastic, but they said he was actually quite a affable, uh, 
he, was, he would laugh a lot. And you, that's the only criticism of the film. He doesn't laugh a great deal in the film. It, it, but he, he wasn't as intense, perhaps, as he, he comes mm-hmm. across it in the film. But apart from that, great film, First Man. Um, two other films to recommend, and their production team have been hugely helpful to, uh, to Space Boffins over the years. Last Man on the Moon, which is a documentary about Gene Cernan, the late, sadly late Gene Cernan. Very good, very funny. It's very funny. The scene of Gene Cernan trying to get onto a horse is one of the funniest things I've seen in the cinema of the last few years. Uh, And also their more recent uh, film, same production team, uh, Mission Control movie, uh, insight into Mission Control, particularly around the uh, Apollo 13. Really good. I think if I had, you know, money was no object, I would get one of those moon globes, the small, that seem to rotate and float or sometimes. You know what I mean? Mm. I was going to say that. I mean, I've, I've thought about a couple of books and films as well, but the one thing I would really like to buy and give people as presents is a good, affordable moon globe. Yeah, they are Why expensive. Why has nobody done it yet? Yeah. They are very expensive. They're really hard to find. So there's, there's your gap in the market. Yeah, I, I saw one on um, Jan Werner's desk and was mesmerized by it i just saw and then immediately looked it up afterwards and thought, oh. mm. <laughs> but yeah now i'm with you there alexandra and uh thank you both very much for uh coming on the program robert massey and alexandra we should Lost. say one more time what the book is called mm. it is called moon art science culture space boffins is a boffin media production in partnership with the naked scientists and this is our final one supported by the atrium space insurance consortium um, as you've probably heard we've had several sponsors over the last seven years but atrium have uh, been with us since the very beginning, since uh, 2011. Stalwarts. Yes, yeah, stalwarts, that's the word. Um, and we'd like to say a huge thank you to Atrium and particularly their rocket specialist, David Wade. He has the coolest job. He insures space rockets. And he knows our former engineer and he knows all about them. So the, the issue is what next for Space Boffin? So to continue, we're going to have a think about funding, maybe things like Patreon or uh, other versions of funding. So uh, do look out for what's next. If you've got any thoughts about how we keep Space Boffins going, because we're determined to keep it going in some form or other, or if you can financially support us, uh, do let us know. In the meantime, enjoy the break. We'll be back in January for our first podcast of 2019 as we enter our eighth year. Um, and during those eight years, we've we've had everyone from Chris Hadfield to Buzz Aldrin, Samantha Cristoforetti, Helen Sharman, Tim Peake. Robert Massey, Alexandra Lott, we've had everybody. Colonel Frank Borman. Yes, Colonel Sanders we've not had. But anyway, have a great Christmas and thanks for listening.